Welcome to Prairie Dock On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3, provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Dock programs. Please follow the Prairie Dock on Facebook and YouTube, and go to prairiedock.org for more information on making a charitable gift. Like your home, sometimes your body can have a power surge. These surges can cause involuntary changes in body movement or function, sensation, behaviors, or awareness. Seizures, tonight, on call with the Prairie Doc. Good evening, and welcome to another episode of On Call with the Prairie Doc medical information based on science built on trust. I'm Dr. Andrew Ellsworth, your Prairie Doc host tonight. Thank you for joining us for our 22nd season. Tonight's topic is seizures. Joining us in the studio are Dr. Connie Taylor from Avera Medical Group Pediatric Specialist Sioux Falls and Dr. Jeffrey Boyle from Avera Medical Group Neurology Sioux Falls. Dr. Boyle, Dr. Taylor, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thanks for having us. Jeff, if you don't mind, please uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Uh, I grew up in uh, kind of in the Iowa, South Dakota area. Um, went to uh, medical school at the University of Nebraska Medical Center and then did neurology residency and then a sleep fellowship at the University of Iowa. So I uh, came here, I think about nine years ago, 2014, and I've been at Avera ever since. So what is your practice mostly? Um, mostly neurology. Um, uh, you know, there's enough of us now where we're starting to do more subspecialty work, but I still see all sorts of, of neurology um, patients, whether it's strokes or seizures or um, multiple sclerosis and a variety of other things. The, um, my sleep is about 25%, so I see like sleep apnea and narcolepsy and other sort of sleep-related problems, so. Excellent, well thanks so much. You've been on the show a few times now. Mm -hmm. So I appreciate you having you back. Well, thanks for having me. And we've got a rookie here with us too, Dr. Taylor. Tell us a little bit about yourself too, please. Sure, um, I grew up in, in Maryland, um, kind of did my early undergraduate medical school on the East Coast. Um, I went to University of Chicago for a pediatric residency and uh, child neurology residency as well. And then I moved to South Dakota right after residency about 2015. Um, worked for a few years, decided to go back to training, did, did a fellowship in epilepsy, and then I moved back. You liked it enough you came back, huh? I here twice, yeah. Wonderful. <laughs> All right, well, nice to have you here. We'll, we'll adopt you, absolutely. And, uh, and so, obviously, you see kids. Yes. Exclusively. Yes. So I see from sometimes prenatal consults up to um, generally 18, but sometimes I'll keep kids until they're about 22. Um, but I see kind of a little bit of everything. I do, um, I do have the epilepsy fellowship, so I see a lot of epilepsy, but I see migraines, um, developmental issues, a lot of, a little bit of everything. Wonderful. Well, once again, thanks for, for both being on the show. You know, we're talking about seizures tonight, and I think this is our first show dedicated purely to seizures in 22 years, so we can really dive in with this. Let's start out talking about what is a seizure, Jeff? Um, so a seizure, uh, really, I think, I like to start at the clinical part of it, so um, it's what you see and um, it's a spell, it has a beginning or sometimes a warning, it has a middle and an end. And the, um, 
Some patients don't have that warning or don't remember the warning, but then they have a change in behavior or change in, in how, um, what the level of consciousness are. So, so they can lose consciousness is quite common. And then um, they have, then the seizure stops. There's the, if they shake, then that stops. And then they recover. And that, that's, that's the kind of the general formula of a seizure. Um, the, what's happening in the brain is, you know, how I think of it is almost like an electrical storm. You know, you're, you're, the introduction uh, for the show was like the, the power surge. And I think that's, a, that's an appropriate um, analogy because, you know, our brains work very quickly with, with chemical electricity is, is kind of how I think of it. And um, it has to work fast. That's how predators catch their prey and how prey flee from predators. And so the brain and the whole nervous system works on a hair trigger. And when things go wrong, they can really go wrong with the electrical storm that just spreads across all these brain cells. And the way that comes out is, you know, confusion. Can't, people can't talk. They get stiff. They can kind of foam at the mouth when they can't swallow. It just gets real foamy and they can bite their tongue, they can um, kind of fall over and get hurt. Um, and, uh, and then as the brain kind of reboots, you know, the computer, so, so to speak, gets um, rebooted, it, it takes a, you know, oftentimes a few minutes or maybe hours even to kind of re get back to normal. So that's, that's how I think of it. So, you know, we think of the seizure being the shaking, but it doesn't have to be. Correct. And yeah. like, you know, even sometimes it's an absence seizure of staring or what. Now, does that happen just with kids or can that happen with adults too? It can happen with adults too, but I say by far and away it happens more in childhood. Um, it's, uh, and it's kind of, we think of it as a, a behavioral arrest. So people just stop and they're, they can't respond and they don't remember anything during this, this short spell. and. Um, yeah, but it's seen much more in, in kids, so I don't know if do you have anything why, to add. Do we know why we see that in kids almost? Ex I'm not sure, so in, there's what we call um, syndromes, like seizure syndromes or epilepsy syndromes. So a lot of the syndromes that we see in pediatrics have ops on seizure as a, as, a, as a major seizure type. I'm not sure why that's the case, but it just seems like that um, as the brain is forming and developing, that's just a seizure type that develops in that age group. Now, when we start talking about kids and seizures, of course, anyone in seizure, it can be such a scary event for, for anyone else around. Is there damage being done? I mean, do we, how much do we need to worry or what should we do to help them when they're having a seizure? The most important thing for kind of seizure safety and thinking about kind of um, damage or things, it's, the, it's breathing. So um, during a seizure, like, to tell people if you're kind of shaking or if you're really stiff, what happens is your airway gets can get stiff too. And if you're not moving air, that's when we start to think about kind of um, if there's a potential for kind of brain injury from it. The seizure itself isn't harmful for the brain, but loss of oxygen certainly can be. Sure. And so we want to help make sure they can breathe, mm -hmm. but that doesn't necessarily mean sticking something in their mouth. No, no. Um, that's one of the things we tell people not to do. I think there's a myth that you can swallow your tongue if you're having a seizure, so we always say do not put anything in anyone's mouth during a seizure, but you want to make sure someone's like laying on their side and that they can, their airway is, um, is open and that they can breathe appropriately. Sure, yeah. And so, um, what else should we do if someone's having a seizure? So we've, we've positioned them, 
and maybe laid them on their side, now what? Well, I tell people, I mean, the most important thing is to stay calm. Seizures are really scary to watch. Um, once you make sure someone's in a safe position and they, they can't hurt themselves or fall, um, also keep an eye on a watch because seizures always feel so much longer than they are. Um, there are um, certain people might have a rescue medication, so if a seizure lasts a certain amount of time, there are medications that can help stop the seizure. And then if it seems like that someone is having a very long seizure, not responding to medication, then it would be appropriate to call uh, 911. Sure. What are some of the um, reasons someone might have a seizure, Dr. Boyle? Well, like Connie said, it's, you know, sometimes people are born with a syndrome and it's a, it could be something developmental, like um, as their brain was forming, some neurons, some brain cells got confused on where it, they were supposed to go or where they were supposed to wire. And so they kind of get a, a short circuit almost and then that short circuit can just really kind of spread and then that's a seizure. Um, other people seem to have a genetic problem. So something in the DNA makes an error in a protein in the, in the, on the neuron and that, that really kind of uh, sets up a scenario where they can oftentimes just something changes and then the electricity kind of goes haywire and, um, and then they have a seizure. For adults, um, uh, uh, we see more folks that have a stroke and that scar that's formed from a stroke uh, ends up causing seizures um, or brain tumor. Um, that, that certainly can cause a seizure. Um, or a, a brain bleed, so the, that blood gets into the brain somehow from trauma maybe, or, and um, they, they fall down, they get blood on the brain, and then they get seizures from that. So those are, those are all sort of possibilities that we see. So then, of course, it, it, we may not be able to tell just from looking at someone what happens or, or what caused a seizure. So someone had a seizure, it sounds like they had a seizure, they came into the doctor, what, what would we normally do? Well, in an emergent setting, we usually will do a physical exam, do basic laboratory studies. There are some things that cause um, what we call like provoked seizures. So, um, for example, low blood sugar, high blood sugar can cause a seizure. So we want to make sure there's not anything that's kind of fixable that's causing a seizure or a severe infection, something like that. Um, once we make sure that there's nothing kind of acute um, going on at that moment, um, really it's trying to figure out what happened, what caused it, and to see if someone's at high risk for having a second seizure. What are some things that um, can mimic a seizure? So um, probably the biggest one that I see is um, fainting spells. So a lot of times people can faint and can have seizure-like movements after they kind of pass out. Um, and it can be really hard to um, differentiate between kind of fainting with unusual movements and a seizure, um, especially because they can look very similar. Um, and a lot of times if there's no one to witness it, you're not, don't have the best like history to go on either. Sure, yeah. sure. Um, it, it, there's times where um, if you go to a movie they might warn people that there's could be flashing lights. How does, how does that trigger a seizure, Jeff? Um, that's called photosensitive epilepsy and um, it's generally more of a kind of the, an epilepsy syndrome, kind of somebody born with it, it, it um, generally. And it, it's just, it's a way to uh, you know, provoke that seizure. You know, like, like you said, it's a, uh, low, low blood sugar can do it and these, these sorts of things. But when you flash the occipital cortex, which is the seeing part of the brain, it's in the back and it actually 
versus the rest of the brain is a huge compar um, compartment of it. And so when you're flashing these lights and then it just forms these bigger and bigger brain waves and then it goes into a seizure, it's just, um, it's just a way to provoke that, that seizure by stimulating that, that sizable cortex um, that we got. So. so typically we might do an MRI, look at the brain, make sure there's not a, a mass or tumor or a, an apparent cause for a seizure disorder. Um, in most seizure disorders, can you tell from an MRI? You can, if there is like um, a structural um, lesion or abnormality on the MRI, there are certain things that predispose, certain areas of the brain that predispose to having seizures. So um, you can tell by certain MRI findings that someone can be higher risk for having us, um, epilepsy or future seizures. But someone with ep epilepsy might have a normal Correct. MRI. yes. Yeah. And so then we'll also do an EEG, mm -hmm. um, and there's, that's the electrodes on the, on the head, and we'll show a little bit about that later. Uh, but uh, what are we looking at there, and how does that tell us? So an EEG kind of looks at brain waves, and ideally we um, can get someone awake, drowsy, and asleep during the, the, the study. Um, and we're doing, we do some things to kind of provoke um, abnormalities. So we do the uh, photic stimulation, the flashing lights. Um, we have some people breathe really heavily for three to five minutes, and sometimes that can provoke abnormalities as well. And what we're looking for is just signs of kind of brain irritability. So um, we call them sharp waves or spike waves, but these are just signs that the brain's a little bit more irritable in certain areas or sometimes all over the brain um, that can just predispose to having seizures. And so now we've determined someone had a seizure or has had multiple and they have epilepsy. I mean, you call that epilepsy if someone's had a recurrent seizures or what, make, what makes someone have epilepsy? There's kind of two different ways to have a diagnosis. So if you have one seizure and a reason to believe that you, um, you are high risk for a second, so that could be an abnormal EEG or an abnormal MRI, um, then that would be by definition epilepsy. But um, in the absence of those abnormalities, sometimes just having more than one seizure. So having two seizures without a cause or um, something to provoke it would also um, be a definition of epilepsy. And so now we may start a medication to help treat that. How do they help? Um, so the way I think of these epilepsy medications is, you know, like I said, the, the brain is on a hair trigger. And if you think of, um, you know, the, the brain going too fast as part of this seizure, the um, medications slow that down a bit. Now you can just blast it with really powerful drugs that put you to sleep. And we do that when sometimes we have seizures that don't um, stop, we just slow everything down. But what we want for an outpatient, a person that's going on with their life, is you don't wanna slow everything down. You just wanna slow the the neurons that are firing too fast, faster than normal. So I think of this like the governor on my son's go-kart. So the engine, I don't want my son who would go too fast if I didn't have this governor. I put this governor on so he can't go too fast. He hit a tree anyway. And, but he didn't hit it as hard as he would have if I didn't have that governor on. So if I have a patient, I put this medication in their pillbox and they take it. It's hopeful that they have these sets of brain cells that are gonna go too fast, but they, they just can't because this medicine is sitting on those neurons and slowing them down so they can't go too fast. So that's how I think about it. 
um, choosing the right one is, is, can be difficult. Um, or it can be easy. I mean, sometimes you get lucky. But, but that's the basic way that, that they all work, I think. Is it often just trial and error? We try one, and if it works, great. If not, we move on? Or is there, how do you know what to use? It depends on the kind of patient situation. So sometimes if there are certain EEG abnormalities or MRI abnormalities or there are certain seizure types might respond better to certain medications. So it's kind of um, case by case, but it's kind of looking at, at trends and what has worked for similar um, situations in the past. Sure. Well, seizures in children can be scary and stressful for both the patient and the family. One Brookings family has lived with that experience with their child through multiple types of seizures over the past decade. Prairie Doc Sam Schauer shares the story of their struggles and treatments as they work to find a plan for their child. Court Henderson is the son of Alicia and Eric Henderson, who serves as head coach for the South Dakota State University men's basketball team. At three years old, Court suffered his first seizure while attending preschool. So we decided to get him to one of the hospitals there in Fargo and, and um, he started, you know, having seizures and started having hundreds of seizures in a day and had four different types of seizures and it was a pretty tough time. Court soon suffered from four different seizures as the months went on. While doctors put Court on different medications and worked to find a solution, it didn't seem like they were working. All the Hendersons could do was just watch helplessly. He's sitting here at the kitchen table and he's eating cereal or whatever and he has his head drop and, mm -hmm. and then milk spills and all that stuff and you're just sitting there. It's like you get emotional thinking about yeah. it because you can't really do anything about it. And it made him sad. And it made him sad. He was embarrassed. Soon after, Court was taken to an epileptic specialty doctor in Minneapolis where an EEG found that Court was having a seizure every one to two seconds. Ironically, our, our doctor that we were seeing was very surprised when he met Court. Um, he expected him to essentially be a vegetable. He did not think that he would be able to talk, walk, run. Um, and honestly, other than the, the seizures happening, he presented himself as a very normal boy. With the medications not working and a daunting finding from the EEG, things seemed bleak for the Hendersons as they searched for answers. Around this time, Eric was coaching a game against North Dakota, and Court and his struggles came up in conversation with the coach. Then, a miracle happened. And I told him this story about Court, and so happens he had a nephew that dealt with the exact same thing. Like years before. Years before, mm -hmm. and he had talked about how he had tried the ketogenic diet to help him because he wasn't, the meds weren't working. And um, we're like, and I just, I just, my heart just dropped. I'm like, well, the meds aren't working for court either. Mm -hmm. and so what is this thing? And After talking to the family and doing research, the Hendersons soon started four-year-old court on the keto diet while taking four medications. Life soon improved for court and the entire Henderson family. He could feel things changing, mm -hmm. you know. He, he, he stopped having those seizures and mm -hmm. was able to, you know, act and do things that a normal kid could do. And, and that was, he hit the pause button on that for a little while. So he had to have one to two ounces of protein, five grams of carbs, carbohydrates, and yeah. then he had to have one tablespoon of butter, mayo, or oil, plus a fourth cup of heavy whipping cream. And that was all he could have in a meal. Court stayed on the diet for six years. 
He was slowly weaned off his medications until it was just one medication alongside the keto diet. We took out the diet the first, diet first yeah. and then he went for another year on one med. Um, and we just took that out last year. Yeah. So he is currently not on any medication or any diet restrictions. Diet restrictions. Court only had one seizure during those six years he was on the diet and has been able to enjoy a more normal lifestyle, playing with friends and having fun. The Hendersons also notice Court's empathy and attention toward others when an injury occurs. He doesn't want anybody to hurt. You know, when, some, when, when somebody else is hurting, he's hurting. He doesn't want anybody else to go through pain or anything like that. He, he knows what that's all about. He knows that's hard. They both say Court has always been tough and what he had to go through made him tougher. Alicia ends with saying every seizure is different and what worked for Court may not work for others. This worked for us, but you have to be diligent yourself and like and pushing forward and finding what works for you because it's just it's not the same for every child out there. That's really quite the story, and I really appreciate the Hendersons for sharing sharing Court's story. And uh, um, and 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 I'm so glad that he's doing so so much better. Um, you know, there's there's a lot to unpack from that interview. Um, for one thing, that, that this diet, do you, how how can a ketogenic diet help seizures? There's a couple different mechanisms that it works through, but. Um, mostly it's just it regulates the amount of um, sugar in your kind of bloodstream and it, some of our, um, especially our genetic epilepsies can have, be very responsive to, um, to this diet. Sure. And then also, you know, so now they've got it under control and then start to think about weaning off the diet. How common can that work successfully? I would say a lot, most people, the diet's hard to do for a very long time. It's hard to do for a short time, too. It's a hard diet yeah. to stick to. Um, I think it's really hard for kids to um, to have whipped cream and high fat and tell them to go to a birthday party and you can't have any cake at the birthday party. So it's yeah. it can be really hard. So I think partly just because it's a really tricky diet to be compliant with, but also um, it's really hard in the body. Most people um, don't do it for a very long time and eventually you can wean off of it, yeah. It is my understanding that after having a seizure, the brain is more susceptible to another seizure. Is that basically true? Yeah, it's something we call kindling. So it's kind of as you build a fire, the fire gets easier and easier to, to build because it, um, you're kindling the fire. It's similar with seizures. When your brain has one seizure, then more and more seizures are more likely to come um, afterwards. So does the reverse hold that, you know, the longer we go without a seizure, are you less likely to have an, another seizure where you can start to wean off medication, Jeff? Um, it depends on what causes it, I think, is the, the biggest thing. So if I have a patient that um, is has a brain tumor, has it taken out, it was a benign tumor, but they had a seizure that, that led us to that, that uh, diagnosis and that um, surgery, I will go a long time before I really think about taking them off seizure medicines. Um, just because even doing surgery is kind of uh, damaging to the brain. But I mean, I have folks that just can't find the right one with the right side effects and you know, it's a, it's a chore for them to 
Um, they just don't like taking the medications. And so sometimes just kind of a shared decision making with my patient, I'll say, all right, well, here's the risks. Um, here's the benefit, but um, we can try it. And some people do it, you know, and, and some people have a seizure or an aura, the warning that, that they're gonna have a seizure and then they call me and then we get back on a, a medication. So it's just, it's case by case, I think. It's possible, but not, not I wouldn't say common. Is it more common in the pediatric world with kids that perhaps they'll outgrow it, for lack of a better word? Yeah, it, it's, it's much more common for kids to kind of grow into and grow out of epilepsy. Um, especially some of the kind of syndromes we have, there are ages where it's common for, for kids to not have it after a certain age. So we'll, sometimes we'll treat for a certain number of years or sometimes we'll treat to a certain age and then um, try coming off the medication. The other thing I want to ask, still in relation to this interview, basically, is you know here you've got um, parents that you know have their kid and suffering, and they're kind of at their wits' end and, and trying to find solutions and feel like they're running into some walls, perhaps, and not finding what's working yet. What what do you recommend families and patients in that type of situation? I think. Um be persistent. It's it's when we get to the point where we've tried several different medications and we're not seeing results. More medications or different medications sometimes isn't the answer. So we have to go to things like diets or um, think about surgeries or other options. You have to kind of think outside the box a little bit when you get to um, when you failed a couple of medications. What do you rec I mean? What do you recommend in those situations too for patients? Yeah, yeah don't lose hope. I mean that's. Um you know, you can't just ignore it. You, you just got to keep trying. Sometimes, um, you know, it's a referral. So I'm not an epilepsy specialist. Um, and so I will refer to an epilepsy specialist. And there's, there's you know, plenty around the, the region. You have to make the commitment to drive and it's a financial burden and everything else. But I mean, there's, there's just, there's expertise out there. What I don't like um, folks doing is, is going to, to non, um, evidence-based therapies, and that's that's discouraging because um, I worry about those patients who are flying to different countries and they they're on um, unusual websites or things that I haven't heard of before. Um, I think that's a that's a risky endeavor. I can't say that if it's not been tested, I can't say it won't work, but um, I think it's it's dangerous to kind of um, think about non-scientific ways of managing health. Yeah, I mean, we want people to get help, but there's harms that can arise from from trying various experimental things that that uh, that that can that can harm things. And of course, this isn't unique to epilepsy. True. Um, you know, can't you think about cancer treatments or or whatever else? Mm -hmm. it, you know, it, I'd, I'd say if you're frustrated with with your situation, your doctor, please don't just give up and try some crazy stuff, yep. you, you know, ask them maybe for a referral or a second opinion mm -hmm. or to help lead you to another another avenue for, for help because there are different solutions and mm -hmm. different medical solutions or surgical solutions. What I always tell my patients, you know, and I welcome second refer second opinions, you know, I, I it's easy for me um, to, you know, when somebody goes to a different person and it comes back to me, I learn either I learn something new and I, and I can help other people, 
or I um, am reassured that what I was doing for the thin management of this patient was right. And so it's a win-win for me, I feel like. And so it's not, it should, you shouldn't be embarrassed to ask for a second opinion by any means. Um, and really your physician should kind of welcome it, I think. Yeah, good. You mentioned surgery. So how can, sur what do they do for a surgery for epilepsy? There are a couple different surgical options, but for the most part, if we can identify the part of the brain where seizures are coming for, from, um, either that part of the brain can be taken out or kind of disconnected from the rest of the brain so the seizure can't spread from it. One way I think of it is, is I mean, sometimes they'll even, you've got two halves of the brain, and sometimes they'll even just cut that connection. And then now the two sides of the brain aren't communicating that way, it can't spread across to the other side. And Yeah, there's a lot of different surgical options and, and everything is, again, tailored for every particular patient, but there's um, surgical centers can help to kind of figure out what the best route would be. Sure. Um, another option that certainly was in the news more when, when they've been talking about medical marijuana is that sometimes, or for some forms of epilepsy, perhaps, medical marijuana can be helpful. Could you talk on that? Sure, I think there are certain um, syndromes or genetic um, mutations that it can be very helpful for. Um, it can be really hard though, because every state has their own program a lot of times. Um, there are some FDA approved kind of medical marijuana um, analogs that can be really helpful, and I prefer those because it, it's a very um, regulated um, medication, so you know that the patient's getting the same thing every day, and um, because it can be very helpful, but also interacts with other medications too. So you don't want to take different doses, different times, and, and kind of mess other things up in your system. While we've been talking about various treatment options for epilepsy, any other treatments you want to mention on, whether they're experimental or up and coming or, or anything like in that? In adult neurology, we use um, vagal nerve stimulators. Right. So um, adults, I mean, certainly taking the tumor out, if that's causing the, the seizure is, is one option. Um, but if we really are having a hard time with you know, three different medications, a vagal nerve stimulator um, can be placed. So this nerve is in our neck, goes down to our stomach actually, but it also goes up to the brain to kind of communicate things back and forth. But it goes into a part of the brain that then seems to have connections all over. And so then if I put a little, like, almost like a pacemaker, so it just buzzes every so often, it seems to just keep everything, the rhythm of the brain sort of regular. And um, that's how I think about, I don't know if we actually know how it, it works. Um, it's kind of beyond my knowledge, maybe beyond everybody's knowledge, but, but that's how I think of it, as kind of a little bit of a pacemaker that keeps it, um, keeps a, a circuit from going out of whack. And so, and it's quite effective for some folks. Yeah. And the side effects are, are, you know, a lot better than some medications, so. We use, it, we use it quite often. Yeah, remarkable. We use it in pediatrics, too. Mm -hmm. The other nice thing about the vagal nerve stimulator is that there's a, a magnet, so it goes off every certain number of minutes, but also the magnet can help when you're having a seizure to kind of make it uh, shorter. Mm -hmm. In 2015, the CDC concluded that 1.2% of the population, or approximately 3.4 million people in America, had active epilepsy, meaning they knew they had epilepsy and were treating it. A good way to diagnose epilepsy and seizures are through EEGs. Prairie Doc reporter Sam Shower takes us to Sioux Falls to discuss their importance and why they are important in diagnosis. Dr. Karina Gonzalez is a neurologist at Sanford Health in Sioux Falls who helps diagnose epileptic seizures through an EEG. So EEG stands for electroencephalogram. Um, that is a test that measures 
the brain activity, uh, the electrical brain activity. Um, and we usually use that test uh, when we're working on figuring out what's going on in patients that have seizures or seizure-like events. An EEG works by gluing many wires to a person's scalp, and the tips of those wires have electrodes, which record the electrical signals in the brain. When first diagnosing someone with an epileptic seizure, Dr. Gonzalez starts with a routine EEG. They're gonna be awake during the test, so we can see what the brain waves are doing when they're awake. And then usually we would like them to also fall asleep, so we can see what the brain waves are doing when they're sleeping. How a seizure is diagnosed is through the signals. Dr. Gonzalez says neurologists know what normal signals and patterns should look like in the brain, and the EEG results help them look for abnormal patterns. People with, that suffer from epileptic seizures, we see sparks of abnormal electricity that should not be present um, and is captured during that test. Dr. Gonzalez says there are other long-term EEG tests that help diagnose other kinds of seizures. She also says some tests will show normal brain activity with a person who has epileptic seizures. You can still be having epileptic seizures and have epilepsy, and then you can have a lot of those brief EEGs that are normal. So you don't need to have an abnormal EEG to be diagnosed with epilepsy. Uh, and that is very important to know because some people will still have seizures, right, and they are diagnosed with epilepsy and they had a lot of short EEGs and the EEGs are normal. In those instances, she recommends patients to discuss with their doctor about the test. Dr. Gonzalez says patients usually take one EEG test to be diagnosed with epilepsy or an epileptic seizure and don't have to take any follow-up tests. However, they can do another EEG test later if a patient asks for it. Let's say you had one seizure, your EEG was initially abnormal, and then you have gone a lot of years without any seizures and you would like to know, can I be off my anti-seizure medication? In those cases, we will order a, a new EEG to see what's going on with your brain, electricity, and see if that might be okay for you to get off the medication. Dr. Gonzalez ends with saying if a patient thinks they have a seizure, getting an EEG will help with finding out which type of seizure they have and how they can go forward. Let's say you, ha you have a generalized epilepsy, epilepsy and you're given some specific medications, those meds can actually make it worse and not better. So in those scenarios, it might be helpful to know exactly what type you have so it can help with treatment. So for the most part, when someone's been diagnosed with epilepsy and, and now and they've had their EEG, they've had their MRI, they're on medication, and hopefully maybe they're well controlled, it's probably going to be a lifelong thing. Is that safe to say? I mean, like we talked about earlier, you can, you can have a, um, a pediatric patient or a young, um, or young person kind of grow out of it, so to speak. Um, or if there is a definitive cause that we've, yeah. you know, taken care of, but but it's it is a lifelong for most a lifelong um, life to uh, to condition to, to live with, you know, really. And so then accommodations need to made to be made. Now now there's some laws about driving. What are some what are some of the laws on driving epilepsy? Well, I, I recognize that you know the the government helps keep the roads safe, 
and um, it's a hard discussion with with uh, patients that you when you say well you can't drive because of these laws that the government has made so that if a person has a seizure they don't injure others and every state every state has its own set of laws or regulations and and it's it's different in most states but generally speaking it's it's some amount of time usually three to six months at least here in the Midwest that where I have patients and um, they really can't drive some states it's a mandatory thing where I where I, somebody when either I or my clinic or another clinic tells the um, uh, tells the state who you know has epilepsy and shouldn't be driving and other times it's it's uh, not manda mandated but the patient is is informed of this and they have to follow the law how long is there a length of time they can be seizure free and then they can start to drive again yep um, so it's any episode of loss of consciousness so it could be that they faint it could be that their sugar goes low um, that uh, clock starts so in in Iowa it's six months regardless in this state it's three months um, unless a uh, doctor, uh, it's six months unless a doctor signs the form that says you can drive, that it's, it's preventable. And so that in South Dakota, there's a little bit of wiggle room in that. I, I was trained in Iowa, and I think most of my partners were trained in, in, in states where it was six months, and I feel like that's probably the, the most appropriate um, uh, time limit because it, I just, you know, I wanna keep the road safe and and my patients safe too. Yeah. Another thing to think about is, especially with some of your patients, that they're younger and maybe they're well controlled and they might be female and at some point they might want to get pregnant. Are there some considerations for pregnancy and epilepsy? There are, um, so especially some of my teenage patients who start having seizures, if we can um, get the idea that it might be a lifelong condition, it does change like the seizure medications that we recommend because there are certain medications that are safer in pregnancy. And even though my patients might not be thinking about that at that time, it, it's not the kind of thing you wanna change when you're thinking about getting pregnant in 10 years or so. So we usually choose medication knowing that they might wanna be, be on it for a long time. So there are some medications that are completely safe in, in pregnancy? Safer than others. I, nothing is completely safe in, in pregnancy. It's, it's hard because we don't have the, the trials. Everything's kind of based on registry and, and reporting. But there are some medications that we know are unsafe, and there are some medications that have significantly less risk. Sure. But it's a, a risk to um, the pregnancy. Um, if you have a seizure during pregnancy, right. you can lose the pregnancy. And so it's a balance between the, the risk of what we call congenital malformation, where uh, um, something doesn't form right, which is unfortunately one of the major complications with um, medications for seizures in pregnancy. But then avoiding that seizure in your you know, second trimester, and then it's just the blood pressure changes and the, the muscles contract, and then you lose the pregnancy. And so it's a balance, and it's sometimes it's challenging. We were talking about uh, the signs of having a seizure. And so if someone knows they have epilepsy and knows their signs of a seizure, well, f you mentioned auras and some things that, so what is an aura? What might they experience? It's quite variable. If a, if a seizure starts in the back part of the brain, maybe it's a visual aura, sparkling lights, um, uh, even images. Um, I had a, actually a personal friend who thought of a, a serial commercial in the 1980s when she was young and that was her aura and she would see that vivid uh, vividly and that was and then she knew something was going on 
um, and it could be uh, deja vu. So this is a feeling that I have experienced this exact scenario before, and it's a, a certain kind of feeling. Um, it can be, uh, you know, f uh, not associated with seizures too. So if you have deja vu, it doesn't mean you're you're in have epilepsy, but but that is something that that um, people with epilepsy have noticed that that deja vu feeling is is a bit of an aura for them. What are some of the accommodations a family or someone with a seizure disorder epilepsy might do to help minimize the risk of injury besides not driving, you know, from having a seizure? Um, the three kind of things I recommend for people for the most part is um, if you're on anything with wheels, so a, a bike, roller skates, just wear a helmet, and then I would hope that most of the patients are wearing a helmet anyway. Um, in any body of water, if that's a bathtub or a pool or a lake, just make sure somebody is have eyes on the patient at all times. If it's a kind of a really um, severe epilepsy, you might want someone like next to you at all times. Uh, and the other thing I say is just not climbing things that are, are taller than the patient is. So if someone's up in a tree and they have a seizure, they can get really hurt if they were to fall out of the tree. Yeah, I was speaking with uh, a friend who had been involved with a camp for kids with epilepsy, and perhaps you've done that, uh, and just fascinating the things that they had to think of to accommodate them so they could have these opportunities and swim and everything, but in a safe manner. Yeah. I can only imagine. That's great. Um, so when someone is used to having uh, epilepsy and, and having a seizure, and I don't mean to say you, it's, it, it, it's scary, but I, I think I want to introduce the thought that and we touched on it, we don't always have to call 911 right away. I know I've had some patients that are frustrated that people always call 911 when they have a seizure. And when in doubt, call 911. You, you don't know what's going on. But could you speak to that, when it's appropriate to call 911 for help and when, when it's not? I would say when, um, when things are significantly different than previously. So if a seizure is longer or, or just not, um, or there's probably problems with breathing, then that would be a reason to call 911 just to make sure someone's um, getting oxygen. Um, but primarily, most seizures, especially the ones that are less than five minutes, will stop on their own. So a lot of people, if the seizure stops on its own and the um, patient's kind of returning back to baseline, then it's appropriate to just kind of watch at home. But I always right. tell parents if they feel in their heart they need to go yeah. to the hospital, then just go to the hospital. Sure, absolutely. It's somewhat of a natural progression for parents, I think, and, and caregivers that they kind of get tired of going to the emergency room and mm -hmm. they have been through this before, they feel experienced in it and it's not different than it usually is and they end up just saying, all right, we're gonna watch and see what happens and then you know, if they do have something new or they're not waking up after the seizure, then they usually can, then they can go to the emergency room. It's hard to have like a, a, a rule that applies to everyone because there's gonna be patients like the, um, the first patient in the video that has have seizures every few minutes. And if you, you know, there are, are definitely people who, have, if you have seizures every few minutes, will go to the hospital, but that family, it's just not feasible to go to the hospital every day. Mm -hmm. So you have to like make it very specific, specific for each patient. Sure. There's a question here of something that I haven't heard of too much before. What is sudden unexpected death in epilepsy, S-U-D-E-P? Is this, is this, uncommon. Have you heard of that before? So um, we refer to that as SUDEP um, and that basically is kind of an unexplained death in someone with with epilepsy and it's it's not common but it's a it's a, a fear we have for all of our patients so um, the risk factors for for kind of basically suddenly dying in, in um, with epilepsy would be having nighttime seizures, 
having uncontrolled seizures, especially on multiple medications, um, and um, having long like, convulsive seizures are, are those are the biggest risk factors. So we want to make sure that um, we know about those seizures and we treat them appropriately. We touched on uh, fainting spells, how they can mimic a, a, a seizure or, or be con confused with a seizure sometimes. And there's other things that can, can too. Could you speak on some of those? Jeff? Sure. Um, so <clears throat> when um, in residency, I'll use a personal uh, anecdote. In residency, I, I uh, was it was alone. I was alone. My attending was coming in, and I, w and I had a stroke patient. I gave him TPA, which is a clot buster, and is a, a relatively young man, and he made a miraculous recovery. And I, I personally experienced, and I hyperventilated, hmm. and it was the strangest sensation. So I'm in the emergency room. I saved this man. I felt like I saved this man's life, and first time I'd ever done anything like that. And I could not stop my breathing. Physically, breathing, over-breathing, I got lightheaded. I was very embarrassed, of course, because all my emergency room physicians were staring at me. But I felt that overwhelming emotional uh, sensation. And it, I couldn't control it. And I wasn't doing it on purpose or anything. And I think that sort of scenario where the emotions just take control. That can be, you know, honestly, a panic attack can look like this. A person who becomes physically overwhelmed with whatever situation they're in, they, this can happen. I believe even it can be subconscious, where a person isn't even thinking about the trauma they went through, but in deep inside, it just oh, it just bubbles up, it wells up, and then a person just goes into a, a state that looks like they're staring off or a state where they're shaking or a state where they're just behaving uh, unusually. And it's kind of up to us to kind of determine what is this spell. One thing that's quite helpful is, um, you know, if, if the patient, if the person is safe, if you see a seizure, the person is, is laying and they're, they're uh, on their side and, and everything is okay, or if there's another person with you, Somebody can video that. I mean, the phones we have are just amazing. And you know, you just quick hit that record button. And then based on so many seizures that we've seen, we can often tell, oh, this seizure came from the left frontal lobe. Or this seizure looks like it's coming from the right parietal lobe. Just based on what the person looks like and they're, they're doing. And then we can you know, time it with that. We can tell oftentimes if this is uh, you know, some sort of panic attack or some non-seizure related spell, it's quite helpful. Excellent. In the final uh, minute or two here, as far as pediatric seizures or pediatric neurology in general, what are some recommendations you give for young mothers and, and, and families in general? Um, I generally tell people just to trust their gut. I'm, I think a lot of times, People talk themselves out of things. They this is this is nothing. This is nothing. I'll get better, um, and it delays kind of coming to see a doctor or asking questions that they should be asking. So I think people, if you feel deep down that something is is happening with your child or, or yourself, I think it's important just to, to reach out to your doctor and ask questions because otherwise, um, it just makes things last longer than they need to. Yeah, it, it and that great point again. How filming we can we can we, we can film it. And, and, and that can re really help. In last minute, any other words of advice for, for our audience? Um, I think it's, it's um, you know, like 
the the piece on that on the on that boy, um, the people can be withdrawn, you know, because of their seizure, and they can be embarrassed. And I think that mental health aspect of it, you know, yeah. it, it's you can become depressed because of this condition, and the medications come, sometimes can can make a person more depressed. So just take care of yourself. Um, approach your doctor, you know, or. Your, you know, if your loved one isn't acting right and they seem down, just help them out. Don't, don't ignore that either. Thank you, great advice. We'll be back after this. Looking for a source of trusted health information? Grab a copy of your local newspaper or read online the newest Prairie Doc Perspective, a weekly health and medical column. Head to prairiedoc.org to access all archive columns today. A seizure can be one of the most frightening things for a family member, friend, or anyone to witness. However, for some people with epilepsy, seizures may be fairly common and not unexpected. Roughly one in 10 people may have a seizure at some point in their lifetime. A seizure occurs when there is a burst of uncontrolled electrical activity in the brain. This may cause a sudden change in awareness or full loss of consciousness, unusual sensations or thoughts, or temporary problems in muscle tone or movements, such as stiffness, twitching, or limpness. The two main types of seizures are focal and generalized. A focal onset seizure starts in one area of the brain and spreads, causing mild or severe symptoms. A generalized seizure occurs when both sides of the brain are affected. Generalized seizures may include absent seizures, which cause a staring spell, the petite mal seizure, atonic seizures, which cause someone to go limp suddenly, myoclonic seizures, which cause sudden body jolts or increased tone briefly, tonic seizures, which cause muscle stiffness, clonic seizures, which cause muscles to spasm and jerk, and tonic-clonic seizures, a combination of jerking and muscle stiffness, the grand mal seizure. If you witness someone having a seizure, stay with them until the seizure ends and they are fully awake. Stay calm. It should end in a few minutes. Ease them to the floor and turn the person gently to one side, which could help them breathe. Clear the area of anything hard or sharp to help keep them safe. Consider putting something soft and flat like a folded jacket under their head. Consider removing their glasses or sunglasses. Loosen ties or anything around the neck. Not all people who have a seizure need to go to the hospital. Time the seizure and consider calling 911 if the seizure lasts longer than five minutes. Other reasons to call 911 include if they have never had a seizure before, if they have difficulty breathing or waking after the seizure, if they have another seizure soon after the first, if they get hurt from the seizure, if it happened in water, or if they have a known health condition like diabetes, heart disease, or are pregnant. Do not hold the person down or try to stop their movements. Never put anything in their mouth or forcefully open a tightly clenched jaw since that could harm them. It is a myth that someone having a seizure is in danger of swallowing their tongue. After the seizure, the person is likely to be unconscious or sleepy for a few minutes more. This is the post-ictal phase, when the brain is still very active and trying to contain the electrical impulses. 
Once someone is alert, they are likely to be sore, confused, or frightened themselves. Tell them what happened in a calm and simple manner. Seizures can be quite frightening to witness, but with some knowledge, you may be better prepared to help. Thank you so much to Dr. Taylor and Dr. Boyle for volunteering their time to help us to answer your questions about seizures. If you would like to see and hear more episodes of this program, please like and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, or visit us at prairiedoc.org. Look for Prairie Doc Perspectives in your local newspaper and online. Listen to us live every Wednesday morning at 9.30 on KBRK Brookings, and be sure to look for the podcast of this program, Prairie Doc On Call, wherever podcasts can be found. From all of us here at On Call with Prairie Doc, thanks for joining us for another episode of Health Information Based on Science, Built on Trust. Until next time, stay healthy out there, people. Population health refers to the health outcomes within a group of people rather than considering the health of one person at a time. Population health, next time on call with the Prairie Doc. My name is Tom Dean. I'm a volunteer board member for the Healing Words Foundation. I grew up on a farm near Wessington Springs actually a farm that was only a few miles from where my great-grandfather homesteaded, so our family roots are deep there. I, I went to high school in Westington Springs and then to Carleton College in Minnesota and from there to medical school in Rochester, New York. Access to health services is quite limited, so the, the Prairie Doc activities allows people to have contact with medical professionals from a variety of disciplines. The uniqueness is the fact that it's independent, it's not associated with any of the various competing forces that sort of control health services today. It's objective, independent, and I believe reliable. I think having access to health information that people really do trust is a tremendously valuable service. And that's true whether you're in the prairies of South Dakota or the middle of New York City. For more information or to donate, head to www.prairiedoc.org or send your donations to Post Office Box 752, Brookings, South Dakota, 57006. Thank you for your support. Major funding for On Call with the Prairie Doc has been provided by... At Avera, our nationally recognized health system will be right here with you, with care and coverage. Hello, possibility. Hello, healthy. Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Doc as it continues to open doors for important medical information. 
and with the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions, Brookings Health System, Ophthalmology Limited, South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians, Avera Heart Hospital, First Bank and Trust, Dakota Allergy and Asthma, Vance Thompson Vision, Monument Health, Black Hills Medical Society, Brookings Madison Flandreau District Medical Society, Peer District Medical Society, Sioux Falls District Medical Society, Yankton District Medical Society, Orthopedic Institute, Lake Ponset Sailing Academy, Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy, Dakota Bank, South Dakota America College of Physicians, and Swiftel Communications.